but but definitely there are things in the report and and sort of interpretations of the act that the commissioner makes that do make me concerned that um, that the bar has been lowered a little bit. Welcome back to ReadyMade Radio. I'm Christopher Kinsinger. Joining me today on the podcast are Kara Zwiebel and Ryan Alfred. Kara is the director of the Fundamental Freedoms Program at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, and Ryan is a professor at Lakehead University's Borlaskin Faculty of Law in Thunder Bay. This episode was recorded the week after the Public Order Emergencies Commission released its report on the federal government's invocation of the Emergencies Act in response to the so-called Freedom of Convoy that occupied much of downtown Ottawa in early 2022. I sit down with Kara and Ryan to ask for their thoughts on the report and its conclusions. As a matter of full disclosure for our listeners, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association was granted standing before the inquiry of the Public Order Emergency Commission last year, and Professor Alford was granted co-standing with the Runnymede Society's parent organization, the Canadian Constitution Foundation. Kara, welcome to Runnymede Radio, and Ryan, welcome back to Runnymede Radio. Thank you. Nice to be here. Great to be back. Uh, We're thrilled to have you both here to talk today about uh, the final report that the Public Order Emergency Commission released regarding the 2022 invocation of the Federal Emergencies Act. And at the time that we're recording this podcast, it's now been just under a week since the commission, which was chaired by Justice Rouleau, released its final report. And so as a starting question to kick us off, I wanted to ask what your initial responses were to the report when it was released last Friday. Kara, maybe let's start with you. Sure. So, I mean, I, you know, I think that the report obviously is, it's a, it's a big document. There's a lot there to get through. And so I'd say, well, I, you know, I think the executive summary is 300 pages. That's just <laughs> right. the executive summary. Right. Yeah. It just says overview. And then, and then it's, yeah, just under 300 pages. So, so there's a lot there. And so, you know, I think obviously the initial, um, the, the, the first, you know, the first things we were looking at were um, some of the findings around whether the the threshold under the Emergencies Act was met and the sort of appropriateness of the emergency measures. And on those points, um, I think, you know, uh, we at the CCLA have a clear uh, disagreement with the conclusions that Justice Rulo um, came to. But I do think that the report and the commission's work was um, a very important mechanism for accountability and transparency that there was a lot of information that we got through this process that we would not have otherwise had access to accepting that you know that there's always more we'd like and there's always more transparent that the government could be and more information that it it could have disclosed um we still i think in this in this process got um got a lot of information and um and the report ultimately tells a fairly detailed story about sort of what what happened in the lead up to the invocation of the act and um, issues around the police actions and government actions. So I think that's all um, very valuable. But I, I'd have to say, you know, as someone who participated in the in the commission's work and was was trying to um, to really press for 
more rigor in terms of the analysis of whether that threshold was met, that I, I did have some disappointment ultimately with the commission's conclusions. Ryan, how about you? Well, what struck me right away is this tension between accountability as a goal of the inquiry and the deference that was manifested by the conclusions of the commission. So just at various points, I think we'll talk about this when we discuss those determinations around the threshold. There was this notion that, well, you have to assume that the government was acting in good faith at various points, um, especially when um, in distinction to this openness or transparency, they chose to um, invoke sister-client privilege. Um, so it was kind of remarkable to hear all this talk throughout the commission process about how the goal was accountability, and then to see in the final report this, this recourse to deference as a way of deciding critical issues. And so just my initial response was just to find that very jarring or discordant. Let's move on to the, um, the ultimate conclusion that Justice Rouleau reached in the report, namely that the, quote, very high threshold for the invocation of the Emergencies Act had been met. Were you surprised by this? And do you ultimately agree with it? I think we know the answer to the latter one, but were you surprised that this was the ultimate conclusion that was made? Do you want me to jump in, Chris? Yeah, why don't So, yes, I was very surprised. And that formulation as well was very surprising because it was asserting that it was a very high threshold, lowering the threshold, suggesting further lowering of the threshold via the severing of the link to the CSIS Act, which we'll speak about, and then saying, well, we've met this very high standard. So it, it, it seemed like very careful rhetorical framing. And that just kind of raised my um, uh, suspicions a little bit about how this had, had come about, right? Um, because I think it would have been one thing to say this, this standard has been met and just to be very forthright in that conclusion. But there was very strange hedging about, you know, how the commission came to this decision only, you know, after, um, you know, kind of with trepidation and thinking about how other people could reasonably disagree. It was it was very strange just to, to see these again, this sort of strange discordance between um, this these notions of why well, I came to this conclusion um, only uh, reluctantly, and then this very ringing statement about how they overcame a very high threshold. So again, just just certain things just didn't seem to align in the way they were setting up and resolving the issue. Kara, what's your take on that? Do you agree with Ryan that there's a bit of a, a discordance here between the conclusion that was reached and, and the reasoning of the commission to get to that conclusion? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's interesting and, and pretty significant that the that the commissioner does sort of put some of those, you know, um, qualifications on the conclusion that that it's not something that you know, that the evidence wasn't overwhelming, that um, reasonable, reasonable and informed people could come to a different conclusion. Um, I think partly he was, um, you know, recognizing that his task was not to assess the legality 
um, even though he was he was willing to to do that, and I think it was it was appropriate that he he did come to conclusions. Um, and, and that was that was an argument that Adam Goldenberg made in the Globe and Mail that in fact uh, the the commissioner should not be opining on the legality of the invocation. Sorry, I didn't mean to interject there. But, yeah, but that no. is obviously a part of the dialogue that's been going on the past few weeks. Yeah, there's definitely been been you know a number of people I think who have said that's not what the commission should do. Um, I think given what. You know the commissioner heard and how much time was spent um, in the commission's work looking at those issues that it would have been uh you know even more disappointing to just say sorry that's not you know that's not uh i don't have anything to do with that um but i think what he what he what the commissioner does try to be very careful about is that is that ultimately the task uh, falls to the courts to really assess the legality um i also think you know that there's um, although he although he describes it as a high threshold and says, says it was met, but, you know, frankly, I think it, it's very hard to sort of sum up how it was met. <laughs> it mm -hmm. still is, to me, a very kind of diffuse um, set of circumstances that that the commissioner, I think, points to to sort of support that conclusion. I think, you know, um, I, I suppose you know, I typically think of, um, you know, the, the types of things that are defined under the the threats to the security of Canada definition in the CSIS Act as being things that are a bit more tangible and that you can sort of, you know, specific um, specific events or threats. But here it's, it's all a bit sort of it's spread out in different places. There's this possibility and that possibility. It's also informed by the... Um, you know the economic situation and the concerns about economic harm so it, it does to me come off as, as a, a little bit muddy and um you know and and i do worry that that does sort of water down the the threshold and and make it easier to meet it mm -hmm. well and on that point thinking about these these definitions as as you say we have you know, this broad concept of there being a national emergency. And of course, there's uh, certain steps that have to be made before a national emergency can be established. One of those is, is threats to the security of Canada. And on this point, the report describes uh, the so-called Freedom Convoy as a lawful protest that ultimately devolved into lawlessness, culminating in a national emergency and, and thus, by definition, a threat to the security of Canada. What do you make of this description of the protest itself? Ryan, let's start with you on this one. Well, I mean, it was very vague about the nature of the lawlessness. And this was the problem throughout the inquiry. Um, if you take a look at what people were being charged with, so ultimately some of the ringleaders were charged with mischief or conspiracy um, to commit mischief. Um, this really isn't kind of a thing that you would expect when the threshold is, is threats to national security. And the fact that there was an ongoing um, court supervision of the protests in Ottawa, right, that the protesters had been enjoined from honking during particular hours, um, bylaw uh, enforcement was being ratcheted up with respect to propane, things of this nature. It's, that's what was before the court. So the court seized with considering whether or not the protest should be enjoined as an illegal protest was essentially trimming away at the edges of it to kind of deal with the lawlessness, which was largely a matter of um, bylaws rather than uh, infractions of the criminal code. 
So um, it, it, I would have expected when you saw that kind of language that there would be a little bit more analysis of where the lawlessness was. But it seems like at that point then, and uh, and Kara mentioned this, you kind of lapse into this notion of, well, this is what might happen in the future, or here are the opportunities that are being presented, right? Kind of, I, I don't want to say flights of, of speculation, but verging on that, um, at the time that we had this assertion that the protest had been lawless, which, again, a little bit of rhetorical slippage that I found uh, troubling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kara, what's, what's your thought on that in terms of how the actual protest was described in terms of its, um, you know, going from a lawful protest to something that was, in the Commission's view, uh, lawless? Yeah, it's sort of, um, you know, I, I agree with some of what Ryan has said about how it, it's not, you know, it's not, the report isn't so specific about exactly, you know, where where that lapse sort of occurred. And there is a discussion, and I think to to the commissioner's credit, a recognition that a lot of people that were involved in these protests did want to protest lawfully. They, they you know, and, and some of them were under a misapprehension that, you know, any protest, because it's protest is lawful, and, um, and others, um, you know, were not, um, they had misunderstandings about what the law allowed. But but many of them did, you know, genuinely want to get their message out and do so in a way that they were, you know, per- permitted to do within the bounds mm-hmm. of the law. Um, you know, I, th- I think the, the the sort of finding is maybe that the whole the whole situation got a, a bit out of control, and partly because you know police were not well prepared for it, and they they didn't have enough resources to address it um, in the way that they wanted to or needed to. Um, but but there is, you know, a discussion of uh, more generally in the report about, about what the, the freedom to peacefully assemble sort of includes and what restrictions on it are reasonable or not. And ultimately, I mean, I think the commissioner says these are very fact dependent and contextually dependent determinations of, you know, when when is a limit reasonable or not, which which is not a satisfactory answer for a lot of people, but I think is the truth that, um, you know, how you define these lines is it does depend a lot on the the circumstances. Well, and on that point, one of the charter entitlements that the commission uh, grappled with is section 2C, which guarantees freedom of peaceful assembly. And obviously we have no major rulings from the Supreme Court of Canada on the scope of section 2C or even on what a test for section 2C uh, should obtain because uh, more often than not, it, it's just not one of those um, uh, protections under the, under the charter that has to be asserted. But interestingly, on, on that point, um, the the commission uh, report deals with this idea of what peaceful means within peaceful assembly. And certainly it notes that at a minimum, that means that peaceful needs to be without violence. So a violent assembly can't be a peaceful assembly. But it also addresses this question about uh, whether or not uh, peaceful means something closer to, to quiet or, or calm. So much in the same way that uh, a tenant might have peaceful enjoyment uh, to a certain premises, whether that applies here. Um, but the, the commission does reach this interesting conclusion, uh, quote, that the important point is that an assembly is not excluded from the scope of Section 2C simply because it is disruptive, end quote. And I think that's a little bit, of, it sounds like of what you're getting at, Kara, is that Protest by its very nature contains this sort of 
disruptive element to it. There is an element of inconvenience that comes with it. And so that can make it uh, difficult when we're talking about these, these terms and determining when does something uh, go from being a lawful disruptive process to uh, lawlessness, much less to uh, a national emergency. I don't know, Kara, if you have any follow-up thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah, I would just say that I think, you know, it is something that, that the CCLA put put in our closing submissions that we, you know, we, we do think that the scope of, of Section 2C of the Charter has to be interpreted in a, in a pretty broad manner, mm -hmm. just like the scope of freedom of expression is interpreted in a broad manner, and that um, it is a feature, you know, not a bug of protests that they are disruptive very often it's only because they are disruptive that they can be effective and meaningful. So, um, so I, I think it's important that they're, you know, that the commissioner did sort of recognize that the scope of that freedom is broad. And what that means is restrictions on it have to be justified by the government and they have to be justified, you know, they have to be demonstrably justified. Mm -hmm. Ryan, there were so many you... interesting moments. There were so many interesting moments and just one that really struck me um, the prime minister made a comment where uh, when being cross-examined, he said something along the lines of, well, you know, when you start protesting to try to change government policy, well, that's where it starts to become problematic. You know, I mean, <laughs> I don't know if I agree with that. And I mean, it just there just seemed to be this real disconnection um, between kind of this notion of government as like orderly administration and this idea that. The notion of protest is the idea that there are competing interests in society. And sometimes people who feel that their interests are not being taken into account come to, to put those um, interests noisily in front of decision makers precisely for that reason. And um, again, it kind of goes to the point of what do you expect of a protest, right? The idea is that, well, you're not listening to us because we don't have a lot of influence. And I think that definitely with the Freedom Convoy, right, you had a sense that there was this um, narrative of economic marginalization, uh, both sort of long-term, medium-term, and short-term. People who felt that because of their class position in Canadian society, that decision makers don't listen to them. So the, the idea that they come to Ottawa and they're going to be as quiet and passive as possible is, is really kind of a, a strange notion. But even stranger was this idea that, well, it's not a protest if they're trying to change government policy because, you know, for whatever reason, we have the best optimal view of how to balance all competing interests within society. Mm -hmm. well, well, on that point, I want to pivot a little bit from talking about the protest itself to talking about the response to the protest. And Justice Rouleau concluded that it was, quote, regrettable that a situation arose requiring, in his view, the invocation of the Emergencies Act. And specifically, he cites a failure in both policing and more broadly, a failure in cooperative and collaborative federalism uh, as, they, as these various levels of government sought to respond to the protests. But even if we grant that these were failures, right, a failure in policing, a failure in federalism, are they sufficient reasons to justify invoking the Emergencies Act? Kara, what's, what's your thoughts on this? Um, you know, I, I guess, I don't know whether to just say no or to say you still have the thresholds in the act and, mm -hmm. and you still have to meet those thresholds, you know, regardless of whether there are these failures or not. And and, and I continue to, to believe that those those thresholds weren't met. Um, mm -hmm. But, I, you know, I do think that it's it's important that um, that the commissioner did did point to these 
these things as being, you know, this was not an inevitable situation. This there, there were things that governments could have and should have done and things that police could have and should have done that would have, um, you know, potentially avoided um, what, what he saw as the need to use the act. Um, so, and then a lot of the recommendations that he makes are, you know, are sort of focused on trying to address some of those deficiencies. I think, um, while we can probably have some hope that some of those recommendations might, you know, make their way into um, into law or policy, the, the federalism piece is really about, um, you know, for lack of a better term, playing nicely with others, right? It's about getting along and um, doing what's best for everyone without letting politics interfere. And I'm not sure that there's any recommendation or um, instruction that the commissioner can give that's going to sort of force governments to do that. Ryan, before you answer, I just want to maybe um, rephrase the question a little bit. And, uh, you know, as Kara said, there is obviously the threshold is still the threshold. Um, but we, we have this question about whether or not um, a failure in policing or federalism is enough to justify the invocation of the act. I wonder if, you know, if we even change the description, though, from being one of failure to being one of incompetence, does that change the answer? And I, I ask this because I know uh, Professor uh, Kerry Frock from the University of New Brunswick was uh, tweeting, obviously, about the um, the, the report uh, earlier this week. And uh, and what she concluded was that, uh, you know, she still doesn't believe that government incompetence is a sufficient basis to justify invoking the act on any interpretation. So what are your thoughts? Uh, you know, maybe responding a little bit there to what Professor Frock said, Ryan. I think she's exactly right. And it's just a matter of the constitutional text, because the statutory threshold is a reflection of the division of powers. So go back and look at the source of that statutory threshold. You go and take a look at the discussion of the emergency branch of POG in the Anti-Inflation Act reference, right? So, I mean, the notion that you have this emergency and because it cannot be dealt effectively with uh, by, by all, all the tools available to a province. You see um, Beats saying in his dissent, which had um, on that point, the support of the majority of the justices saying, well, that's what makes it fall into POG, right? It's because it's something that a province cannot address because in our divided powers, there must be some level of government that has the ability to address it, right? So there, if it's just, well, you know, you can't get your act together. And so therefore, there's a transfer of jurisdiction of the federal government. <laughs> you don't have very much of a federal system left at that point, right? Particularly because there are differences of opinion. So um, interestingly, right, I mean, I imagine, just imagine kind of the exact opposite scenario, where you take the kind of policing that you saw at the G20, the G8, the Summit of the Americas in Quebec City, where provincial authorities uh, are, are cracking heads, right? In a very aggressive manner, right? And you say, well, you know, um, Canadians' constitutional rights are being suppressed. Here, the, the federal government has to step in, right? Um, either way, you kind of, you come at this. The notion that, well, the province isn't handling it to the liking of the federal government. So therefore, we have jurisdiction under the constitution to address it. Uh, yeah, just why don't you just take a, a pencil and strike out Section 92 from the, the Constitution Act 1867. 
I want to move on to the recommendations that Justice Rouleau makes in the final report. And the report contains a total of 56 recommendations. And we obviously don't have the time, uh, as, much, as fun as that might be, to comb through them and, and to look at each and every little one and, and to discuss their, their merits or demerits. But I want to focus on one recommendation in particular, and that's recommendation 31, namely that the incorporation by reference to the definition of threats to the security of Canada from the Canadian Security Intelligence Services Act be removed from the Emergencies Act. And this is obviously a point of contention that arose uh, during uh, the, the inquiry of the Commission itself, and it's something that is going to continue to be uh, debated as the litigation regarding the Emergencies Act continues. And I want, I want to talk about the litigation in a few moments. Uh, but this, this really became a bit of a sticking point during the inquiry, and a number of other uh, scholars and jurists out there have commented on this. Uh, Lee West from Carleton University has, has written on this. Asher Honickman uh, has written on this. So in your view, were you surprised by this recommendation that this incorporation by reference to threats of the security of Canada be removed? And even if you weren't surprised, do you ultimately agree with it? So Ryan, why don't we start with you on this one? Well, I guess the most problematic aspect of this is the government asked for it. And they asked the commissioner for a lot of recommendations, including ones related to misinformation and disinformation. And in essence, um, the government got exactly what it wanted from the commission. And the, the explanation for why this had to happen, in the opinion of Leo West in particular, and I mean, this to me was the most important moment of the policy phase, she said, I know that's what this is being shaped up to create. I mean, she's fairly explicit about how she thought that essentially the policy phase of the commission was on rails to reach that particular conclusion. I'm putting words in her mouth, obviously. Um, why did the government want this, right? I mean, that's the question that we have to ask. Is it because essentially, and take the testimony of Jody Thomas and the deputy clerk of the uh, the Privy Council, and they're saying, well, it gets really confusing when you incorporate a statute into another by reference. I mean, it was really difficult to hear that and, and not to snicker because, I mean, isn't this what lawyers do all the time? I mean, I don't think there was really a good faith dispute among scholars about how to read the incorporation by reference of the CSIS Act. And Rulo is, is not transparent in the way that he addresses that in the report. So he talks about, well, there are different decision makers and obviously the decision of CSIS isn't binding. But I mean, it, it, at very critical junctures of this report, you would just like to see a straightforward reference to Supreme Court of Canada jurisprudence, right, on how to interpret statutes, on uh, how the nature of the, the venue and, and its historical use affects the way that charter rights uh, are treated within that space. But you don't see that. You see this very sort of vague, open-ended, quizzical sense of, well, this is kind of confusing, isn't it? And you know, maybe we should just decouple this. Well, again, I don't see how that's consistent with the notion of a high threshold. Mm -hmm. Quite the opposite. And then secondly, what's going to replace this? Something that says whatever kind of subjective assessment you have about possible things happening in the future or economic harm being affected by protests, it's, it's really difficult to see how that wouldn't make the invocation of the Emergencies Act in the future much, much easier. Kara, what's your response to recommendation 31? Do you, do you share Ryan's concerns? Uh, do you think there's, there's room here for potential uh, reform of the Emergencies Act uh, moving forward? 
Yeah, I mean, I, 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 there's certainly room for reform of the Emergencies Act, but I don't, I don't think in this respect it, mm -hmm. um, it is, you know, necessary or, or I guess necessarily useful. Um, mm -hmm. I, 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 you know, also didn't think that there was, um, you know, a lot of debate about what, you know, the reference to the CSIS Act meant and that the words are the same and that they mean the same thing and, and accepting that, you know, there's a different decision maker and there's a different context, but, um, you know, but ultimately um, you are still looking at the statutory language and trying to, to apply it to the circumstances that you have in front of you. So, um, and, you know, and, and one thing that the commissioner does say is that um, although it shouldn't be interpreted sort of broadly or liberally, actually like many of the words incorporated many of the words that make up that definition of threats to the security of Canada do have a potentially, you know, broad meaning, right? That That is some of the concern is that is that they can be read um, more broadly than they really should be. And it's the um, it's it's the powers that CSIS has and the extraordinary powers that the Emergencies Act have that kind of tell us we need to we need to read it as narrowly as possible. So um, I'm not I'm not sure what replaces it. I think, you know, there were reasons why um, it was linked to the CSIS definition when the Emergencies Act became law. And um, I mean, there's there's also people who say the definition in the CSIS Act has to change. So, um, you know, I think we'll have to consider consider those things. But um, I, I find it sort of it's sort of interesting that, you know, while the government says the threshold was met here. They also say, but the threshold needs to change, right? To make sure that that basically that it's less controversial that the threshold is met. Um, so I, I do find that um, concerning. And and it wasn't something in our in the CCLA's submissions. We um, we made some you know some recommendations around changes to the Emergencies Act, but not not the legal threshold for invoking a public order emergency. I want to back up a little bit to a point that Ryan raised regarding the fact that this was a recommendation that the government had asked uh, the commission uh, to to include as a recommendation in its final report. And in fact, it was one of several recommendations that were included on request. And I, I don't want this next question to be interpreted in any way as a veiled comment uh, regarding Justice Rouleau's qualifications or his integrity. But there has been this suggestion over the past few days that future public order emergency commissioners uh, should be selected by a parliamentary committee made up of multiple parties rather than unilaterally by the federal government. So in light of this, uh, this, this practice that we saw here where there were certain recommendations, many of them in included in the final report at the federal government's uh, request, do you think this idea has merit? Um, Kara, let's start with you. What are your thoughts on potentially reforming how future uh, commissions are, are set up? Yeah, I haven't. I, I haven't given it that much thought. I mean, it. I, you know, I. I do think that the commissioner was, um, was was diligent and was independent in his work. I, I, you know, I I did find the report to be overly deferential, as we've talked about. But I, um, I don't think that's sort of. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that that was, you know, that the government anticipated that to be the case and that's why they appointed him or, or anything like that. I wouldn't want to cast those kind of aspersions. Um, so I, I don't, you know, 
it's an interesting idea to explore. Um, but but also, I think, you know, and I know we've said we'll get to this, and I know we will, but, um, you know, the inquiry is one mechanism. Um, it's not the only mechanism. And the judicial review process is, I think, a mechanism where you get, I mean, you may still end up with a judge that was appointed by the government, although it would be a judge that was appointed by the government to be a judge, not to mm -hmm. assess the government's, you know, um, actions in this particular circumstance. So, um, so I, I think there are different rules, but, um, but there's certainly nothing wrong with looking at ways to make, um, you know, either the, um, the process more more independent or the process appear to be more independent. Um, I think also, you know, I think he does say that there should be more in the act about about what the mandate of the commission really is, because mm -hmm. the, the mandate of the commission as set out in the statute is pretty vague and, you know, it's just sort of inquire into the circumstances. <laughs> um, and then the government in the order and council sort of gets to put in all of the things that they want, um, they want the commission to look at, which in this case, you know, a lot of them were um, look at the protesters, look at the fundraising, not so much look at the government's actions or, um, you know, the, the how the state responded. So um, I think it is it is use, useful to sort of think through whether the the way that the commission process is set up could be could be improved. Certainly. And, and, and that, of course, was the spirit behind the question was not to cast aspersions on any individual, but but more broadly to ask, is this a best practice? And are there outcomes that we've seen here that would suggest that are, are there better ways of uh, or at least potentially um, more transparent ways or, or more accountable ways of, of setting this up for the future? Uh, Ryan, what are your thoughts on that in terms of potentially reforming how commissioners are selected uh, for future uh, commissions when the Emergencies Act is invoked? Well, letting the government have that power exclusively and exercise it with no oversight or, or possibility of um, input is quite remarkable. And I think it puts commissioners in a very difficult position. So just with respect to the, the, the way that the government tried to frame the terms of the inquiry, at the very beginning, I think it was actually day one, um, Commissioner Rulo said, well, you know, I understand that, but I also have a statutory mandate under the Emergencies Act. And he, he was very careful to say, I'm not doing just the job put to me by the government, right? But mm -hmm. I mean, the same order and council that established those terms of reference established him as the commissioner. And what is he supposed to do about that, right? I mean, he, he had um, some sort of um, health reason that required him to have surgery and the inquiry was delayed quite a bit. There's no possibility of anyone stepping in, right? He's been named by the government to, to fulfill this responsibility. And the strange mm -hmm. thing is, in my experience, judges really don't like that. I mean. The idea of a judge being able to recuse themselves and step back from something if something emerges is is, is very helpful, right? Because if, I'm thinking of Sussex judges, the notion that you know justice be manifestly seen to be done and all this. We want people at the end of the day to just say there's no reason to suspect that there was anything strange about the way someone was appointed. So I think it's very it's unfortunate that that just based on the Emergencies Act as it's drafted right now, there's speculation about the commissioner, some of which is, is manifestly absurd, right? Just absurd speculation um, that you see floating around um, uh, the media. Uh, but why would we do that in the future? Why wouldn't we have a situation where 
you know, the, the, the act that establishes the terms of reference also says, oh, and by the way, this is the person who's going to be the judge of the government's conduct as chosen by us with no uh, oversight or input. It just seems um, really bad for what we're trying to get out of this process, which is um, getting some buy-in from the public, that there's been an adequate review of what is really the most consequential decision that a government can make, and potentially the, the most significant type of abuse of its powers imaginable. Thinking here about the future and, uh, you know, certainly I don't think any of us want to see a situation arise where there has to be a future invocation of the Federal Emergencies Act, but it is there and uh, who knows what sort of situations may arise in the future. So looking back on this particular invocation and we now have this report from the, the first ever invocation of the Modern Emergencies Act, what kind of precedent do you think the report sets for prospective invocations of the Emergencies Act moving forward. Ryan, what are some of the things going through your mind as you're thinking through how uh, this could be applied in the future? There's two things I found particularly frightening. One was this discussion of the potential for lone wolf attacks by people who are inspired by or somehow believe themselves to be in tune to protest movements as a basis for invoking the Emergencies Act. I just don't think any protest activity of any kind couldn't be shut down if you just say, well, it's going to attract, it might, not even does, but might attract the wrong side of person who might commit an act of violence. You know, um, just every every protest that I went to uh, when I was younger had people, you know, waving certain flags, right, who were kind of ideologically committed, at least in the abstract, to something that would very easily allow the government to meet this definition. Uh, and then the second thing was the discussion of economic harm. The notion that somehow there's harm to the economy and therefore that creates a threat to the to national security right um again just remarkably broad so i mean almost th those two things together almost seem like um an invitation to use the emergencies act in the future and especially if you get rid of the threshold um created by section two of the CSIS act for public order emergencies and just the last thing that i would say is i think that leah west made a really good point that it's pretty clear I mean, you could go back and you can see, see why this definition was adopted in the CSIS Act. It's effectively to define terrorism, right? And the idea that strikes, protests, you know, even if they involve critical infrastructure, could effectively be seen as what now steps in for terrorism, as a threat to security of the country. It's a, a vast extension of governmental power, which almost guarantees it will be used again. Mm. Kara, do you agree with that? Um, I guess yes and no. So I, I mean, I definitely worry that that there are some things in the report um, that, like I said before, sort of water down the definition and um, and will make it easier to to justify invoking it in the future. I I do also think that I mean, this whole process of uh, you know the, the commission and um, obviously the judicial reviews and um, it doesn't look to me like a lot of fun for the government, right? It looks to me like something future governments would not be keen to to do. Um, and I think, I mean, I think one of the reasons that we have a lot of these, um, you know, pretty robust accountability pieces in the Emergencies Act is, is a deterrent, right? It's to say, we're going to really scrutinize your, um, your decision-making process and, um, you know, very rigorously. Now, you know, whether 
whether we feel like the commission did that to the extent that it could have. We still have other, you know, mechanisms. The Parliamentary Review Committee hasn't issued their report yet. Um, there are there are other court proceedings, but you know, I I think I I think and hope, and maybe it's just being overly optimistic that you know that governments will not be quick to to reach for this tool. Um, but but definitely, there are things in the report and and sort of interpretations of the act that the commissioner makes that do make me concerned that. Um, that the bar has been lowered a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and the other thing is that the, there's a lot in the report about how, you know, everything is new, right? This is the first time we've had to look at this. It's the first time the commission, there, there's ever been a commission. And, um, you know, if we change the definition, then the next time is also brand new, right? We're also looking at something that's never, there. there's no precedent to examine it. Um, you know, the, the commissioner also didn't um, didn't look much at, at sort of the interpretation of, of threats to the security of Canada under the CSIS Act, like look at some of the, the case law around that. Um, and, you know, th there is a body of jurisprudence that exists. And it, um, so, you know, replacing it with, an, with something new that doesn't exist elsewhere has its own has its own problems. Um, so I mean, I'm I'm worried, but I think I, I think governments are are hopefully going to be very um, still very reluctant to to reach for this tool. I also think you know we're talking about the Emergencies Act generally, um, but but really I think it's the public order emergency piece that mm -hmm. is concerning, right? I think we'd be having a very different discussion if we were talking about you know the report that had just come out looking at the government's use of. Um, declaring a public welfare emergency, right. you know, because of COVID, for example, I think, right. I think we'd be having different discussions. Well, and, and on that, thinking about the precedent that this sets and thinking about uh, the jurisprudence that was or rather was not cited in the report, this, of course, uh, the report isn't the end of the story here when we're thinking about uh, the 2020 invocation of the Emergencies Act and, and whether or not it was lawful uh, because this is being litigated. And CARA, the organization you work for, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, is one of the litigants in this. Uh, the same goes for Runnymede's parent organization, the Canadian Constitution Foundation. So maybe, CARA, give us a sense of what the status is of the litigation uh, right now, seeking judicial review of the, uh, of the invocation of the Emergencies Act, and really what the next steps are in that process. Yeah, so we... Um... The judicial review is um, is scheduled to be heard by the federal court at the beginning of April, and we're hoping that those dates will will stay in place. Um, we we and the Canadian Constitution Foundation brought a motion to have some select pieces of evidence from the commission's process put into the judicial review because the the record that the government produced for the judicial review. Um, was very, very slim. It sort of just consisted of, of some of the um, incident response group meeting minutes, uh, which were redacted and, and, and a, you know, a few other select documents. And, um, and there, there were actually other things that were before the decision maker that we thought the federal court should see. So that motion was resisted by the government, but ultimately succeeded. 
Um, now the government has decided that they do want some more things from the commission to go before the federal court. So they've brought a motion and we don't yet have um, a decision from the court on that. So we're waiting to see what that looks like. We have um, we've put in our argument. Um, we are we will uh, eventually in the next little while get the government's argument in response. Um, and I, I think we do have a right a right of reply. And then the, the hearing is scheduled for, for early April. But I, I think, you know, we are anticipating, and the government has been saying this from, from the outset, I, I think that, you know, the government will try to make an argument that is basically the commission has already done the work and the courts don't need to do it. And it's, um, you know, not technically moot, but something akin to mootness. Um, and, and I think we'll be resisting that very strongly. And I think, you know, the commissioner um, did try very hard, I think, in the report to say, to try and say, these are different processes. I am not coming to legal conclusions. That is the mm -hmm. role of the courts. And, um, you know, and he also, I think, identified there's a lot of talk about sort of the, the threshold for invoking the act. But the other piece is looking at the measures themselves that were put in place and on, on the measures, although he is, you know, he finds most of them were effective and appropriate and is quite deferential to the government. He does also say, I didn't hear as much about this as I might have liked. I didn't hear as much evidence about it and I didn't hear as much argument about it. And his assessment is about were they appropriate and effective, which is not exactly the same thing as were they constitutional. Um, right. I mean, I think, you know, I think you would assume that appropriate includes constitutional, but there isn't a sort of thorough analysis of the reasonableness of the limits that are placed on rights by those orders. And I think that that's something that the federal court will be in a better position to do. Ryan, um, do you have concerns about the potential uh, precedent that this uh, may set for the litigation that's ongoing? Obviously, uh, Legally speaking, the report is not uh, binding, um, and, and Justice Rulo went out of his way it's, uh, to emphasize that. But do you think this is going to carry significant, um, uh, uh, as, as presidential value, um, uh, in, in terms of uh, its persuasiveness uh, for the litigation? I was struggling to find the word there, but do you, do you think that uh, this will be viewed by the courts as having some sort of persuasive value? I mean, the government will argue that it does. Then you just, you know, essentially what you do is you take those volumes, the five volumes of the, the POEC report and put them on a scale. It's a very heavy volumes, right? Look at all the work that was done to create these. How can you possibly on this limited record second guess this? But I think one way of thinking about it is the government had a view about how it was going to be assessed by the commission. And the most interesting window into it, I thought, was David Lametti's interview by commission counsel long before he testified. So this would be September, right? Where essentially he told, I'm not sure who it was, but the lawyers for the commission, uh, well, we just had to make a political decision. That's what this is when we, when we apply the Emergencies Act. And to some degree, there's enough in the commission report to say that essentially that's the type of decision that Rulo is assessing and effectively blessing. The idea is that it cannot really be otherwise, right, because of the nature of Cabinet as a decision maker and all of this. Right? But that's, that's fine for a public inquiry, particularly insofar as they can't make legal determinations of liability, et cetera. But the federal court um, 
challenge is a very, very different kettle of fish. And I think that I think leaning into that distinction and saying, well, this is the opportunity for us to actually get a determination about whether or not the government decision maker here, the cabinet is ultra virus, is statutory authority, which mm -hmm. is always going to be, no matter how political the circumstances, a legal question. Well, thank you both for coming on the podcast today to talk about this. I know, obviously, you've been very busy the past week writing about this and no doubt making other media appearances. Uh, and, and as we just uh, went over, this is uh, the story isn't over yet. And, and likely we're going to be talking about this in years to come. So we look forward to having you both back on the podcast at some point or at a future running meet event to talk about this. But we really appreciate the perspectives that you brought today. I'm sure you've given our listeners uh, a lot to think about. And, uh, and we look forward to seeing uh, what comes next. Thanks. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. Runnymede Radio is a program of the Runnymede Society, a nonpartisan organization of Canadian law students, lawyers, and legal scholars committed to the principles of constitutionalism, fundamental freedoms, and the rule of law. Our podcast is edited by Thomas Falcone and produced by me, Christopher Kinsinger. Our podcast sponsor is LexisNexis. Follow us on social media and stay tuned for more interviews with leading Canadian jurists and legal scholars. So long for now.